Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And today we're welcoming in managing editor Steve Bartle of Ute Zone, uh, our 24-7 sports affiliate for the Utah Utes. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. And we've got a really big football game this weekend. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always good to work together with you guys. You guys are, you know, two of our favorites here at Ute Zone. So it's good to be on the podcast. and. Um, yeah, pretty pretty big showdown this weekend in Rice Cycle Stadium. It should be a, a really good game, hopefully at least. Um, and uh, it's good to be here with you guys to to talk about it a little bit. So, set the stage here. What's what do you expect Rice Cycle Stadium to be like? Um, if it was in Autzen and these two teams were playing, I would say it's probably the best crowd of of the year. Probably. Um, what's what do you? What's the expectation what, that you're gonna walk into? That Eric's gonna walk into uh, at Rice Eccles Stadium Saturday night? Yeah, I would expect that very, very thing to be the case here at Rice Eccles Stadium. This to be the best crowd of the season. Um, it's been interesting this year with you know we Utah didn't get USC, you know they didn't get BYU, which are typically the big games for for Utah, but. <laughs> You know, they they had Arizona State, which was a big time matchup at the time where you had Arizona State playing really well. That was essentially for the South Division um, lead at that point last month. Uh, And then you had UCLA, which is was was the blackout game, which was, you know, those those turned out to be pretty good crowds. But without a doubt, I do expect this to be the biggest crowd and and the best crowd for sure. Just with every, you know, with you fans, but then also Ducks fans like. Ducks fans travel. There's a lot of Ducks fans here in Utah as well. Like I, I know a few. I've got. I'm friends with a few of them, and and so it, it should just be a packed house. And it'll be cool, uh, you know, for a lot of the Duck fan, the Oregon fans. You know, Rice Eccles Stadium. Just you know, they completed their South renovation, so it's going to look a little bit different than the last time you guys were probably here. Uh, and so it should be cool, a pretty cool experience for for everybody. I'm I'm excited to get down there in part because you guys have the best, I would say, media spread for food perspective in the Pac-12. <laughs> Dude, that's so funny because me and so me and all my we always talk about the food spreads at you know yeah. at, at the press box. Like by far the worst experience was Oregon State. Thank uh, you. you. Know, they yes. give you they give you a coupon for like a pretzel and not like that was just <laughs> I was like, what the hell is this? But uh yeah, Utah, we we tried they they try to, you know, take care of you and and uh, and give you a good spread. It's it's uh, it's always it's it's always pretty good food. Uh, Matt Matt's like missing stadium. I was gonna say Matt's missing out because he usually makes these trips and they actually last couple of times I've been down, they have someone carving the ham for you. I mean, they've got yeah. I mean, they, they do it all out. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not your box sandwich lunch that we get at Otson or that we got up in Seattle. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. They, they provide uh, a caterer from Rice Eccle Stadium and, and it's, we've had brisket the last couple of weeks. Oh, uh, oh man, don't tell like, me that. 
<laughs> uh, gratin potatoes and, and just like, yeah, they, they do a good job of feeding us. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's good that you're here, Eric. Sorry, Eric. Sorry, Matt. Like, sorry, you're missing out here. I get to go to Vegas the next day. So oh, there you go. Well, yeah. you know, that, that works too. <laughs> trade, trade works out. Everything's going to work out. All right, let's get to actually some actual football stuff. Um, <laughs> cause I do, I do the food there is great. I'm really excited for that on Saturday, but I digress. Um, from an injury perspective, Steve, can you get us up to date here? Because it seemed like there were a couple of key Utah players who didn't play against Arizona and then a couple more that might have been banged up in that game. Um, starters, key players that, that you maybe aren't sure will play or you know won't sure they'll play against Oregon. You know, for the most part, like Utah has been pretty healthy this year. Like I know Oregon has lost a few key guys this year. Um, Utah has been fortunate to, to be pretty healthy. Um, there were a couple guys held out in the last game, uh, namely Tavion Thomas um, and then also Keaton Bills, an offensive lineman who had list, who had missed the last few weeks with an injury, and then also wide receiver Theo Howard. Um, sounds like those guys are trending in the right direction uh, where uh, we almost expect their return this weekend. Um, and then, you know, in that Arizona game over the weekend, uh, Fabian Marks looks like he went down with – a pretty significant injury, a non-contact type of an injury. Um, and then also, you know, Paul Miley and Nick Ford, but it uh, also, you know, left that game with, with injuries, but it sounds like, you know, Nick Ford has made it clear, like he's fine. He just had cramps, really bad cramps apparently, but <laughs> still. Uh, so overall, like Utah's coming into this thing pretty healthy um, and they should be, uh, they should be pretty good, pretty good from that perspective. Two questions. How is Britton Covey still on this football team? And how is he still a junior? Um, he's been here for like 15 years. Um, and more importantly, just Cameron Rising. What does he, what does he mean to this team? And I guess what happened uh, with him getting put into the starting lineup that's kind of jump-started this program to where it should have been at the start of the year? Yeah, it's wild. Britton Covey's first year was that, you know, it, it was 2015. And if if you guys remember, that was the punt. 62. That was the, yeah, the punt fake, the 62 to, what was that? 62 to 20. Yep. Like that was, that was his first year of college. And that was six years ago. And he's still just a junior. Like it, it's crazy. So, you know, obviously he served a church mission after his first year of, of playing. So he, he was gone for two years. Um, he returned to 2018, had an injury, so he medically redshirted. And then I think he still has like a redshirt available. So he could play another two years if he wanted to, I think. Oh my Lord. Um, like it's it's wild his his el- eligibility. I don't think he'll he'll play another two years. Uh, but yeah, he's been around the you know, he's been around the program for a number of years. And the crazy thing is he's not even the oldest guy on the team still. Like it's there are, uh, there's only like two or three that are older than him, but, uh, yeah, he's been around here for uh, a long, long time. Um, and then, you know, in terms of Cameron rising and what he's done for this Utah team, you know, it starts with his personality and his leadership. Um, you know, he is a guy that just confidence is not an issue for him. You know, guys that play with swagger, with confidence, like that is Cameron Rising. And kind of getting deep into it, you know, here, but with with the type of athletes that Utah recruits, you know, they, they aren't the four-star four and five-star kids that just have that, you know, 
on, you know, I don't want to say uh, they just that that don't necessarily have that same kind of confidence. You know what I mean? Like those four and five star guys, those are typically your alpha dogs that just they're going to do their thing no matter what against whoever. And, you know, especially at the skill positions like, um, you know, Utah's got a couple walk ons playing big roles at, out at wide receiver. Got a couple guys that came from, you know, your non-traditional routes to college football. Dalton Kincaid came from, you know, essentially a, a, pro, a non-scholarship program at San Diego. And now he's one of the, the top playmakers on this team. And, you know, a couple of these guys on on the team needed somebody to, to almost believe in, in themselves before, you know, they, before it translated to the field. And that's kind of the impact that Cameron rising has really had on this team is his belief and confidence has, you know, trickled its way down through the rest of the team throughout the rest of the offense. And it's really elevated the, the level of play from everybody. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of the, the, you know, the, uh, the non-traditional kind of impact that he's had, but in terms of just his play, you know, he's provided a Utah with a quarterback that's able to make accurate throws at all levels of the field. And that's really benefited this team specifically in pass protection where, you know, you can't just sit at 10 yards in deep coverage and, and tee off downhill. Now you have to actually defend deep um, and it's opened up opportunities, you know, in the intermediate and short areas of the field. And it's been interesting to kind of see that impact you know, with Cameron rising compared to Charlie Brewer, who, you know, the book on him was he didn't have the strongest arm. He wasn't able to throw it over the top of the defense. And you see, you know, defenses from those first three games just had their foot on the gas in terms of blitzing, in terms of getting downhill. And Utah struggled pretty mightily in two of those non-conference games. But since Cameron rising has taken over, uh, he's opened up the passing game, which has also benefited the run game as well. And so, you know, his impact has been huge and also his mobility has been a big benefit to the run game as well. So he's been a big difference maker for Utah since he took over against Washington State. Steve, I want to follow up a little bit on the Brewer rising stuff in fall camp. Was it was there like a, what was the conversation around this? So was it most people figured Brewer was the right choice, but maybe rising had higher upside later? Were there people that really felt rising maybe was the right choice and, and were questioning it? And then I, I guess just how. Do do you catch yourself all looking back, thinking if they would have had rising in those two non-conference games against BYU and San Diego State, how different the optics might be for not just this matchup, for, but honestly for the entire Pac-12? Because having two teams that are in that top 10, 12 range, I was thinking about this last night um, as the rankings dropped, or I guess on Tuesday night, of just it feels like if if Utah was 10 to 12 here, this these games would mean a little bit different, I guess, just from a national perspective. Like you caught yourself kind of in that mindset of, boy, this thing could have been different if Rising was the quarterback in, in September rather than getting it at the end there, I guess. You know, I've always kind of had the mindset that it, it wasn't necessarily bad quarterback play. Uh, but over as time has gone on, I've kind of seen the impact that I, I detailed, you know, just a couple minutes ago about his impact and his ability to throw the ball deep and how that's kind of opened up, you know, opportunities and kind of forced defenses to take their foot off the gas in terms of their aggressiveness. And I do wonder, you know, how much that would have impacted Utah in those first three games. Um, I still think that there were other issues that needed to be ironed out 
in those two games. So I don't know how much of an impact it would have it would have made in terms of the end result. But I do think there would have been a benefit to having him back there. Now, with that said, it's important to understand why it was Charlie Brewer versus Cameron Rising. Cameron Rising, if you remember last year, hurt his shoulder um, in the very first game of, of 2020 against USC. And so he, it was a season ending injury and it was the type of injury where, you know, it's, it's not like a ACL or an MCL. It was one of those things where I think, you know, it was a shoulder injury on his throwing arm. And so that's, you know, it's going to take a, a, a lot of time to get back to normal, to get back to 100%. And then even then, is he really at 100% in terms of his ability to make throws as a quarterback, right? Uh, and I think that was kind of why Utah brought in Charlie Brewer because, you know, you never know with uh, injury recoveries, how guys are going to to come back from them, especially with something like that, where it's an injury to his throwing shoulder. Um, so they brought in Charlie Brewer, who had a ton of experience, like four years at Baylor, almost 10,000 total yards. I think he had 10,000 total yards, if I remember correctly. And it's like, yeah, you expect him to come in and, and, and take control of the things. I think Utah looked at this team and felt they were just a quarterback away from being a really competitive team. And ultimately, they were right. Um, it's just that they had that quarterback on the roster the entire time. It's just with his injury, you couldn't, you couldn't lean on him. You couldn't expect him to come back by fall camp and be 100%. You know? So you had to take measures to protect yourself. And once they got into fall camp, I think throughout the offseason, everybody kind of expected Charlie Brewer to be the guy. You know, he had a great spring ball. Uh, but as we got into fall camp, Cameron Rising made a, a very strong impression. And, and a lot of people that I talked to viewed them as, you know, neck and neck, you know, throughout fall camp where Brewer would have a good day. Cameron Rising would have a good day. And it was it was as close as, as it could be in terms of the competition. So, you know, ultimately... Whittingham cited experience with Charlie Brewer as kind of the the deciding factor there, and you know, that makes sense. Um, and credit to Cameron Rising is, you know, he never he never let that impact how he how he went about his business. Since since you know he was told that he wasn't going to be the starter, he was named a captain even mm -hmm. before they made the decision to to go with Brewer as the starter. And so you know he continued to fill that role. Um, really, really well. And I think in a lot of ways with how the season started and with how Cameron rising continued to be a positive Im impact player on the sidelines, it really allowed the team to kind of rally around him once he, once he did enter, you know, the field of play. Um, and it's, I mean, you've seen it in, in the results, you know, since that, you know, they've won, I think they've only lost one game since he's taken over. And, and so he's had a big, big impact on this. Is this Utah team ahead of schedule for having the type of year that it is? Because I look at the depth chart, there's 11 redshirt freshmen, second-year freshmen, or true freshmen playing. And I understand COVID, you know, some guys may have gotten four or five games in last year. But 11 of those guys are listed as starters. There's 16 freshmen listed as backups on the depth chart. This team feels very, very young. Yes. Um, are they ahead of schedule? You feel like I do. 
No, I, I do feel like they're ahead of schedule. Like, as you said, you know, there are a number of, of freshmen and even sophomore. Like, I think in total, there are 63 freshmen and sophomore on this roster. And obviously that's, that's part COVID freshmen and, and all of that. But in terms of just freshmen, freshmen and sophomore, second and third year players um, and first year players, 63 pe- 63 guys on the roster. So it's a young team. It's a team that, you know, with what happened last year where Utah was only able to play five games, they don't even have the typical experience that you would expect from a season, a typical season. Right. So um, in terms of their expectations, you know, within the program, you know, they, they felt like they had a team in terms of their talent level that could compete this season. Um, But even then, like, I, I do think that this team has been a pleasant surprise. I think we, I think we, uh, we, we had to take a step back and kind of realize the impact that the last year had on this team early on where they were, you know, again, just kind of the, the realization that last year wasn't a typical year where you can expect your typical growth um, just because not only was it five games, but then you also were limited in practice uh, through, through various means where, you know, some guys couldn't, couldn't be full contact. A lot of position groups where defensive tack, like Utah's defensive line, that's a big, big key to their development is Utah's, you know, practice and and learning how to play that physical brand of football. That's that's accomplished through practice, and they weren't able to do those types of things. And so, you know, this group took a big step forward after after their non conference slate and. You know, once that Washington and USC games happened, I think this team really kind of realized how good they could be, and and they've taken off. Uh, it's been a really impressive turnaround. Um, but yeah, I would say that this group is ahead of is ahead of schedule just because there is a lot of youth. And you look ahead, you know, to next year, and Utah could return uh, the majority of this roster and 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 be in contention again next year. So. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty intriguing looking down the road from that aspect, but yeah, there's a lot of youth and, and this group is playing you know, at a pretty good level where they're, you know, competing for the South division, potentially the PAC 12. So pretty impressive from, from this Utah squad. Steve, obviously Utah knows full well how Kayvon Thibodeau can wreck a game. I'm, I'm also now yeah. looking, not, a, not trying to take a shot, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have landed. Um, no, but the, the reason I bring this up is is obviously he's going to be a, a key player in this game. But Utah right. is right now best in the conference at protecting its quarterback, one of the best run offenses. This offensive line for Utah, because I was looking back at, at what they were at 19. Obviously, that was an awesome run offense, but they were only sixth in the Pac-12 in protecting the quarterback. Part of that might have been that Pac-12 championship game skewing it because the sacks allowed were really close there, and they dropped a bunch because of it. Yeah. But, is this group feel better equipped to kind of manage Thibodeau and Oregon's front in general? Because I think we've seen at Oregon, especially the last month or so, that feels like, and it didn't feel this way early on in the season, really the strength of the defense is its front. Um, how does you, how does that matchup line up for Utah? Um, what have you seen from this group from an offensive perspective? Well, I'll tell you what, like Kayvon Thibodeau still provides plenty of nightmares for, you know, <laughs> Utah, for Utah fans, for everybody involved with the, you know, with the program, like, what he what he was able to do in that Pac-12 championship game two years ago was just it was incredible. You know, he was he was a true freshman that year, right? 
Yes. He wasn't like just so stupid what he was able to do. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, coming into this, into this game, like I do think that this offensive line is better equipped um, just based on the experience of, of the offensive line like that, that 2019 team had two red shirt freshmen, one of which had just returned from his LDS mission um, and made the switch from defensive line to offensive line uh, the year before. So really new to the position. It had another guy that was was two years in the program. So it was a really young offensive line. Um, and that's not so much the case this year. This is a much more experienced offensive line. Um, there are two guys that played on that offensive line on, on this group, um, Nick Ford and Braden Daniels. And so that experience for them is should benefit them coming into this one because they know and experienced it firsthand, just how, how much of a, an impact player Thibodeau can be. Um, but yeah, I do think that this offensive line is better equipped. Uh, but again, I think everybody's kind of coming into this one with the mindset that this is a big test. Like a lot of people still aren't sold on the offensive line, uh, despite coming into this one as the top team in pass protection, they've allowed the fewest amount of pressures since week four in the pack 12. Um, and, uh, and so it, it's, they, and they face some, some good defenses, USC, they've got a, a first round talent in Drake Jackson. And then also Corey Foreman on that defensive line, Tuli Tulu Polotu is another defensive lineman on that front. That's, that's really good. Arizona State came into that game leading the conference in sacks and TFLs with you know a very good defensive line. And they aced both of those um those tests essentially. U- UCLA came into the game, you know, as one of the top run defenses. They brought a very aggressive mindset in terms of their aggressiveness and blitzing and all of that. Um, and they aced that test essentially. Uh, but still, I think a, uh, this is this is arguably the biggest test that this offensive line will face this year, because it's not only like as much as this is about Thibodeau, like there are other guys on this defensive front for Oregon. Brandon Dorless is really good, uh, and you guys know better than I do. But that that entire defensive front, and then you add Noah Sewell with his capability as a blitzer. Um, it's just it's a, a very tough defensive front, and this this offensive line has a has arguably the biggest challenge this weekend. Steve, talk me off this theory because we, Eric and I, and our counterpart Jared um, earlier this week, we recorded a show, and I ended it with saying, as we've kind of talked this game out, I've kind of convinced myself that I would be if I was betting on this game, I would hammer Oregon as an underdog. Because I think on paper, and I understand games are not played on paper, and I'm not trying to slight Utah in the slightest because I think they are the best program in developing players uh, in the conference. But I think on paper, Oregon is by far the more talented football team. And so I'm telling myself, I, I think Oregon's defensive line is better than what it was in 2019. I think their offensive line is just as consistent as they were in 2019. I think the receivers are an upgrade. Obviously, the quarterback is not. The running backs are the same guys. Um, I, I'm trying to tell myself, expect a close game, but everything tells me Oregon should 
should win this game. And it shouldn't be a surprise if they win it by eight, nine points. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I don't think you're wrong, Matt. Like um, it's hard not to look at this game on paper and, and think how in the world is Utah the favorite here? Um I look at this game and I've watched three games of, you know, Oregon over the last couple of days. I've, I've watched the Washington game, the Stanford game, and then also a little bit of the Ohio state game, just to kind of get a feel for, you know, what opponents were able to, to do and, and how they were able to have success. And then also what Oregon was doing. And the thing that stood out to me specifically in that Stanford game was, um, Tanner McKee made some really great throws. And I think that more than anything else was the difference. There's a ton of talent on on that defense for Oregon. And you've got to come into this one and you've got to execute at a really high level. It demands a lot. When you've got a lot of talent like Oregon does, it allows you a a bigger margin of error, right? Um, And so you've got to, if for the opponent, you've got to raise your level of play to a really high level. We've seen Cameron Rising play at a good level against USC. We saw it against ASU, but he's going to have to take it up a notch um, to for for this Utah team to really have uh, a legitimate shot at pulling this one off. Um, you know, I I look at Oregon and that offensive line, is is really really impressive do i think it's as good as as 2019 that 2019 offensive line was really really impressive um just the amount of experience it's not the same talent um that this 2021 version has but the experience um the know-how all of that it was arguably the best offensive line that i've i've seen up close like it was really really impressive i was on the sideline for that 2019 game and they just, man, they had their way in that second half. It was, it was, uh, it was tough to see. And I'm an unbiased media member, um, but it was tough to see. Um, but this, this group for Oregon this year, it's, it's a, you know, it's a big, massive offensive line. They do a great job of, with, with their offense in terms of counters and pulls and pins and pulls and all of this stuff. Where, you know, these are big monster offensive linemen that can move well out in space. And, you know, Utah has struggled with these big mauling offensive lines. Uh, if you go to that Oregon state game, they don't even have the big bodies that um, Oregon does. And they were able to create a lot of movement up front and Oregon. That's what they've done over the last couple of games is, you know, they've had Travis die running behind them. And so, you know, there's a ton of talent on this Oregon roster and it's, I, I, I don't want to say I'm with you there, Matt, but like, I don't, I don't think you're wrong for filling the way that you do to hammer, you know, that Oregon money line and, and taking Oregon as the underdog here, because, you know, they can, they play a a brand of football that um, can really kind of expose the Utah defense. It's struggled against the run quite a bit. Um, And that talent level that they have there is, is really, really impressive. Steve, am I oversimplifying this and saying this may come down to just who's better in the trenches? I know we talked about quarterback play and, and, you, and you brought up the importance of like the Stanford matchup. I think you're right. Tanner McKee made some great throws in that game, especially that last drive or two. Um, that would play a part. But I, I, I'm kind of looking at this going, man, Oregon's offensive line against Utah's defensive line and vice versa could kind of determine this. And that is sort of what it felt like in 2019. Um, 
is there more to it? You know, does, does there something else that pops up to you that says, ah, that's really more important than what I'm talking about? Or does it feel like that's kind of maybe what it boils down to ultimately? I think for, for the, the majority of the impact here, I do think that it belongs to who plays better in the trenches. Um, you know, Oregon is coming into this one with a, a great offensive line. Utah is coming into this one, you know, feeling good about their offensive line play. I was looking at, at a, a measure by football outsiders, um, you know, it's line yards uh, produced. So it's yards produced by the offensive line. Oregon State is number one. Oregon is number two. And then Utah is number nine. And that's yards generated for the run game, right? So this is line yards is, is essentially how many yards do you create for the running back before they're touched? And so you've got two top 10 teams in this regard um, in this matchup with Oregon and Utah. And so, yeah, like a, the – a big impact on this game is going to come down to the trenches and who plays better um, in in the trenches. And, you know, there's going to be other deciding factors. Like I do think, you know, who can make throws uh, will, will have an impact on this game as well. Uh, who can execute better in, in that regard. Special teams has been a bugaboo for Utah and that could potentially, you know, hurt them in this one as well. But ultimately, I do think that this comes down. If you're looking for the big deciding factor in this game, it's who plays better in the trenches. And if both, if both play well, that's where you can kind of look at, at, at other, other factors here. But I do think, you know, it starts with, with the guys in the trenches in this one. We've gone this long and we've not mentioned Devin Lloyd, and that's a mistake. Um, the best linebacker yeah. in the conference um, by far. I think uh, I, just the importance of him for Utah and also Nephi Sewell. Um, this is Noah Sewell's brother. Um, mm-hmm. They played similar positions, kind of, um, at least from a linebacker standpoint. Just the importance of those two guys, and in particular, Devin Lloyd. Um, Oregon's offensive coordinator, Joe Moorhead, said that he's just as good of a linebacker he's seen the last couple of seasons. I think that's saying something, especially considering – you know, Oregon has one of the best linebackers in the conference on their own team. Um, but I, I think Lloyd's better. Um, just your thoughts on just the importance of Lloyd, Nephi Sewell, and just those two guys and how they're going to have to play against a run team like Oregon, who's produced some really big games on the ground. Yeah. With Devin Lloyd, like this is, this is a guy that's come into the program. He was, you know, a, a safety receiver type in high school. And Utah was like, no, like you're, you're a linebacker at this level. And, and it's taken time. Like he's bought into, to kind of the process and learning and developing and growing. And, you know, the, the thing to the conversation for him, it starts with his work ethic. Um, like he just has that incredible work ethic where he's just going to outwork everybody and outwork himself. And he's turned himself into you know, a potential, if not, you know, solidified his status as a first round draft pick in, in the upcoming draft. And he's the type of player that can impact every phase of the game, right? He can, he can defend the run. He can cover sideline to sideline. He can cover, you know, he can drop in coverage in zone and man coverage. He can make plays you know, he's got ball skills. He can rush the passer. He does it all. So he's he's really, really good um, defending all each phase of the game. 
Um, and he's just kind of turned himself into a, a jack of all trades at the linebacker position. And he gives tremendous effort each and every time he steps on the field. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's him, you know, and his leadership for this team, it means everything. Like he is, uh, without question, the, the leader of this team. Um, and he's the type of leader where he's out in front and he's pulling people behind him. Uh, you know, he's dragging everybody along with him and he's going to bring them along for the ride and whether they want to or not, like that's just the type of guy that he is. Um, and so, you know, he means everything to this defense. He's a big time playmaker. Obviously you see the production he's impacted just every phase, but you know, Nephi Sewell, what he's meant to this team, he's been a great compliment to Devin Lloyd where, you know, you can count on Devin Lloyd to, to, to be productive as he is. Um, Nephi Sewell is kind of that interesting playmaker. I've kind of compared him like if Devin Lloyd is Steph Curry, then Nephi Sewell is Draymond Green, right? Where he's kind of the guy where he can make the plays. You don't always see his impact in the box score where he's, he's tallying the, the tackles that Devin Lloyd is. But his impact is made by a big time tackle for loss where you, he's he his instincts just lead him to the to, to making a play or a forced fumble here or there like that's kind of his impact and he came to utah as a safety and kind of turned himself into a linebacker and you guys see with noah you know with his instincts and his playmaking you know just that knack for playmaking noah kind of possesses those same instincts and that same knack um for for uh, for the position so they really really feed off of each other really really well um and they've you know they've led the way for this utah defense the entire season steve i want to talk about rivalries and how they come about because i this these these two schools when utah joined the conference about a little over a decade ago there was no rivalry i was just looking at it earlier today there was like 15 meetings they were spread out over the course of several decades there just really wasn't any bad blood quote unquote with the way the conference has kind of fallen into place here the last two to three seasons and when 2020 being a covid year you kind of remove it. it was weird for everybody yeah the conference has kind of gone through these two schools recently um and obviously I'm sure Utes feel like they owe Oregon something because Oregon took away a college football playoff berth. Utah's in the position to, you know, repay the favor. I mean, I, to yeah. me, this is kind of the, this is this is the origins or kind of the, you know, the the baseline for where rivalries start. Does it kind of feel like that's the case in Salt Lake? Like, I mean, I know again because there aren't really geographical reasons for these schools to dislike each other. There's not up, up until 2019 really too many reasons from an on the field perspective to dislike each other. But it, I, I'm guessing that there is a sense in Salt Lake right now that like the Pac-12 North is probably going through Oregon for a while and the Pac-12 South should go through Utah for a while. And this is just kind of the start of it. Give me the Utah perspective on kind of these two schools meeting. No, I think you're, I think you're, you know, you're on something there, Eric. Like I do think that Utah fans kind of look at this as, as a growing rivalry where, you know, and it's not just like football, like basketball, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Oregon basketball has had Utah's number for the last few years as well. And so like a lot of it is just out of frustration and jealousy for Utah fans because you know, you've had a lot of success in both, in both sports. And, you know, the, the Oregon wins is, you know, whenever they come, they do mean a lot. Like they mean a lot because they know like Utah fans know and understand there's a lot of talent coming into that Oregon program. And, you know, these are big games and Oregon is competing at a high level. And Utah, 
you know, wants to be competing at that level at a, at a consistent rate as well. And so it's, it's awesome to see these two programs, you know, at the level that they're at right now, where they're competing at the top of the conference. And, and yeah, like, I do think that this is a growing rivalry. Um, is this going to be like a UCLA USC type of rivalry? No, but I don't think it needs to be like, I think it can be that, you know, interdivision, interconference type of a rivalry where, you know, whenever these two do meet up, you know, it's going to be, I don't want to say ugly, but you know, it's going to be a big time battle. And I think that's what this is more than anything else is there's just a lot of respect on both sides of the ball uh, for the opposing program. And it's, it's really cool to have that um, and to have experienced that for Utah over the last couple of years, obviously like Utah fans want to experience like the joys of beating you guys. <laughs> like, that that certainly needs to come. Uh, but yeah, like I do think that this is, you know, a, a rivalry in its infancy stage. And it's been, you know, it's been, there's been some impressive, some, some really good games. That, you know, most of them have gone in favor of Oregon, you know, and, and you can go back to like, like I, I mentioned earlier, the 62-20 game. Like you listen to the Utah you know, highlight video and it starts with Kyle Whittingham, you know, this is David and Goliath. And that was really like Utah's like coming out party. Like, I think he was like two giants. He called this, this isn't David and Goliath anymore. This is two giants. And that game, you know, kind of served as Utah's coming out party is, you know, a higher level program. And then from there, they've, there've been more games that Justin Herbert, Darren Carrington game. And what was that? 2017, 2016 or something like that. They score the touchdown. There's so yeah, so like there's a lot of sour memories for Utah. And I think it's a lot of frustration more so than anything else, where they just want to, you know, give it to you guys one time. Uh, but this is definitely a, a good, good rivalry, growing rivalry between these two programs. Okay, see, we'll end it with this. Um, Utah is kind of in a weird position if they want to make the road ball. Uh, I think beating any team twice, especially in three weeks, is very difficult to do. It, you could argue that it's probably more beneficial for Utah if Oregon wins the first round of these two meetings because in Vegas, the Pac-12 championship game, Oregon wins, they make the playoff, Utah goes to the Rose Bowl. Oregon wins, or Utah wins, they go to the Rose Bowl. What's kind of the, like, is this even a discussion? among fans right now, like, like a goofy discussion because it, it is kind of strange. Yeah. Yeah. Among fans. Hell yeah. It's a conversation. Like, yeah, it's, it's a big time conversation. Like does Cameron rising even start in this game? Should he start in this game? Like, yeah, it's that kind of conversation. Um, but no, it's, it's interesting, right? Like if Utah loses, that helps Oregon's resume, right? Like it kind of solidifies their spot, you know, where they're at right now. And then you, you you face off against them in, in another two weeks, as long as you assuming Utah takes care of business against Colorado. Um, but again, like I, you know, I'm not sure that that's a mindset that Utah is coming into this one. Like yeah. they're always just going to bring their best. Yeah. Um, they're going to take control what they can control because you know even with that, like let's say they they do lose, like like it's no guarantee that you're in the Rose Bowl. You know, after the Pac-12 championship game, assuming Utah loses this one, they remain competitive in the Pac-12 championship game. Like, there's no guarantee, right? So, um, unless you win that game. Um, so, it, it's it's an interesting dynamic with everything. Like, I think I saw a Reddit tweet where it was like, 
Utah has a 65% chance to make the, the Rose Bowl if they lose this weekend compared to a 35% chance of going to the Rose Bowl if they win this weekend. And it's just like, it's crazy. And that's been the conversation, not just this week, but over the last couple of weeks um, for Utah fans. It's like, you know, how <laughs> do we really need to win this one? Like, I don't know. So it's it's certainly been a conversation for among fans. But, you know, inside the program, like I, I highly doubt oh, Kyle Whittingham of all people is talking about that. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Hey, Steve, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, go check out Youth Zone for all their coverage leading up to this football game. And uh, Eric and Eric, Matt, I'll meet you in Salt Lake City at, press, at the press box and enjoy the game on Saturday. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.